Today on Keep Classical Weird, we enter into a grand competition where we'll need your help to choose the winner. The contest is for the title of Craziest Opera, and frankly, there are a lot of strong contenders. All right, let's let's do a rundown about this about this opera. I don't know what this opera is about. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 14 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozal, and today we're going to be immersed in the world of crazy opera. That might seem like a redundancy. Opera is known for being larger than life in many, or arguably most, circumstances. I asked four experts to put forward their top two choices for craziest opera ever. That totals up to eight choices. And through a completely unscientific and non-comprehensive process that resembles a March Madness-style tournament, you, our listeners, will decide the opera that moves on through the ranks to earn the title of craziest opera. I let each of our experts know that the term crazy can refer to anything they decide. Crazy plot, crazy music, crazy circumstances to put it on, or anything else they deem to be crazy. And boy, did they put forward some compelling choices. I cannot wait to see how this silly little contest ends up. So, to present our first entrant into the contest, I bring you our first expert, Claire Burovac. She'll be talking about the 1745 opera Plate by Jean-Philippe Rameau. My name is Claire Borovac, and I'm the general director designate for New Orleans Opera, which I will uh, be starting in September at that company. I Previous to that, I was with Portland Opera for 11 years as the director of artistic operations. And prior to that, I was with Seattle Opera for 14 years in varying positions in the production department. Let's start with Plate by Rameau. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Plate. Okay. So Plate is a French Baroque opera written by Rameau. Uh, Rameau was, um, he came to opera composing late in life. So he was in his 60s by the time this premiered at Versailles. Uh, And it's pretty rare because it's one of the only comic operas in the French Baroque. It's not done very often. In fact, it didn't even make its U.S. debut until 1998. So Plate, uh, in the Baroque era, they did a lot of operas about um, mythology and the gods and gods versus mortals. And so this is another opera along that line. And the premise is Jupiter and Juno always had a tumultuous relationship and he was always cheating on her with mortals and with other gods and producing all kinds of offspring. And of course, it's always blamed on her being jealous. It's she's the one with the issue, right? It's not Jupiter has an issue. It's Juno has an issue. Right. So the gods get together and they decide they want to play a trick on Juno to cure her of her jealousy. And they they find this marsh nymph named Plate, who is supposedly one of the ugliest creatures on the earth, usually portrayed as a frog-like uh, character when you're doing a full production of it. And Plate is also very, very vain and thinks that she is beautiful, thinks that everyone loves her. How could you not help but fall in love with her because she's so beautiful? So uh, the trick is that the gods are going to convince Juno, that Jupiter has fallen in love with this mortal and will marry 
this mortal. And so Jupiter appears to Plate in many different forms, as an ass, as an owl, as a man. And each time he appears to Plate, she becomes more and more in love with him. She says, yes, I'm going to marry you. They set up this elaborate sort of wedding scene. Of course, because it's French Baroque music, there's tons of ballet in it. And finally, just at the moment of truth, when Plate is about to say, yes, I do, Juno shows up and she said, what's going on? Jupiter, you're married to me. You can't marry Plate. Uh, they rip off Plate's veil and everyone sees that it's actually an ugly frog and everyone laughs. And Juno says, oh, Jupiter, of course you would never cheat on me with this ugly creature. So let's go off to Mount Olympus and live happily ever after together. It's a crazy plot. It's also a pretty distasteful plot from my perspective because uh, they're they're mocking this this frog like creature. At the same time, the opera portrays Plate as a very unsympathetic character. I think so that it's not quite as cruel at the end, but it's it's a pretty crazy plot. You said Plate herself was a nymph. She's called a marsh nymph in the score. What does um, that mean? That's a really good question. Not really described. I think that's why they portray her as a frog so often. There's actually one point towards the end of the opera where she's singing pourquoi, qua, qua, and then the oboes come in and do this little croaking noise that is supposed to, you know, emulate the sound of frogs in a pond. Rameau does a lot of that throughout the opera, you know, like in Midsummer Night's Dream, when Bottom has become a donkey and you hear the bassoon going. It's, there's a lot of that sort of stuff in this opera as well. Rameau does a great job with matching sounds and instruments with the characters that he's trying to describe musically. The other thing that makes it a little bit odd, and we're going to go back to one of your earlier podcasts about travesty roles and pants roles, is that um, Plate is a feminine character, but it has always been conceived of and sung by men. It was a special type of tenor that they uh, they had in the French repertoire that was a very, very high tenor. So it's always a man playing Plate. And then, of course, Amour is in the story as well because it's got the mythology piece. And Amour in many Baroque operas is always played by a soprano uh, to emulate that whole, you know, young Cupid nymph boy sort of thing. There was a, a pretty famous performance that Mark Morris and his dance company did a while back that you can look up some photos online. And it's kind of a I mean, actually, you know, you look at the picture of the coronavirus with those little spiky things, and that's what it looks like Plate has sticking out of her head. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can go very fantastical with this opera. Well, and that's, if you want something that, that the audience is going to find distasteful, that's exactly how you would <laughs> style her now. Oh, my gosh. So it's really, it's really a um, almost a farce of, like, an ugly female yeah. Character. Wow. I think that's what Romo was really going for was how how distasteful could he make this character? This was actually a commission that he was uh, given for the wedding of some royalty at Versailles. It premiered at, at Versailles. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the bride, but supposedly she was not a very attractive woman. <gasps> so there was some worry at the time that this piece would just totally ruin him politically because it would have been thought of as a commentary about this marriage, but apparently not. And he catapulted to success after this and was writing more and more French Baroque opera. 
Our second entrant is from our second expert, Damien Jeter. He'll be discussing The Exterminating Angel, a 2015 opera by Thomas Addis. My name is Damien Jeter, and I am an opera singer, and I happen to be one of the uh, two artistic advisors for Portland Opera. And I'm a composer who will be writing an opera pretty soon, so that's what I do. Let's do a rundown about this about this opera. I don't know what this opera is about. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that there are a bunch of uh, rich people who are stuck in a room, who are trapped in a room, and they cannot get out. At the top of the opera, uh, there are two maids, and there's a butler who try who tried to escape, and then they eventually do escape. But then we have this room. It's basically a dinner party, and people try to cross the threshold of the door, but for whatever reason, they cannot cross. And so time goes on and there's like a, a suicide pact and people are sacrificed. And there are also these lambs and a bear. I don't know where they came from. They're like in a garden somewhere. <laughs> so one, one of the lambs gets sacrificed uh, because they have no food and they have no water until they burst one of the, the, the water pipes in order to get water. And there, the relationship between these folks, there's like an incestuous relationship between a brother and sister. There are people who are cheating on each other. There's a woman who's dying who has kind of a weird relationship with her doctor. I'm telling you, this opera is nuts. <laughs> I don't know what it's about. It's based on a film that I think was made in the 60s that has the same name. The only thing that I can draw from it is that it's a comment on class. Because there are certain moments when, like I said, all of these folks are rich. There are certain moments where no matter how downtrodden they are, they still won't do certain things. For example, uh, there's one character who says he cannot stir his coffee with a teaspoon. All right. So that's <laughs> like implying that that's like beneath him? Does that imply that it's beneath him? Or is, he, is it something else? So the only thing that I can deduce from this is that this is a comment on class. I don't know where the lambs came from. I don't know where the bear comes from. If somebody can explain any of this to me, I would love to know. I tried to find some interviews with the composer. The composer's like, yeah, I don't know what this means. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I think is the most ridiculous is the vocal writing. And this piece of music is so high. There are about 15 principles in this, 15 or 16 principles. I mean, it, it it is definitely a show that has like no one lead. But the vocal writing in this thing is so high. I don't know how anybody can do it. In fact, it has the highest note that the Metropolitan Opera stage has ever produced. (laughs) It's like a high A above a high C. And I watched one interview with one of the singers and (laughs) she said, she told the composer Thomas Addis, I cannot sing this. he was like yeah yes you can he like he wouldn't change it (laughs) so between the story which is completely out of this world and that vocal writing it's ridiculous (laughs) i will say this though that as a whole i kind of like it really yeah (laughs) oh i forgot one part there's one part where the orchestra is playing on Tiny violins. What? Like, like teeny tiny violins. Not even like three-quarter size, like toy violins. Like the 
the whole string section or I think just the violins. Also, there's there's another part of it where the there's a crowd outside of this mansion that obviously cannot get in. So the police and firemen and all the all these people are called, but they cannot get into the room. Like nobody can get in, nobody can get out. And at the end, or towards the end, one of the characters realizes that they're all in the same position that they were when the night started. And then they were allowed to sort of trace their tracks. And that's how they get out. Okay, so they they get out at the end? They get out, yep, and then they face the crowd, and it's not good. <laughs> 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 like, this is not, I mean, this does not have a happy ending like most operas, but... So, wait, what happens with them in the crowd? The crowd is very curious about them, and so they sort of kind of mob them. Let's go back to Claire for entrant number three, The Nose. Written in 1928 by Dmitry Shostakovich. The Nose by Shostakovich, which was uh, his first opera. Um, unlike Rameau, he was a, a boy wonder, and he was writing this between the ages of 20 and 22. It premiered uh, in 1928. And the plot is very, it's a little complicated. Um, this had a real source, and it was uh, the Russian writer Gogol. My f- Russian is terrible, so please forgive me if I'm mispronouncing any of these names. But Gogol had written this short story about the nose, and the plot goes as follows. There's a barber who wakes up one morning, and his wife has baked some bread. He cuts open the bread. He sees a nose inside the bread. Uh, He recognizes the nose, sort of a petty civil servant that he shaves every week and i mean first of all he recognizes the nose that's crazy in and of itself right. in my opinion. but he says um oh this is kovalov's nose his wife throws a fit and says get that nose out of my house he goes outside to try and get rid of it he keeps running into everyone he knows so he can't like dispose of this nose and finally he's able to just throw it in the river where he's seen by a policeman who kind of says uh what are you doing what's going on gives him the third degree we never quite find out what happens with that part of the story. It's sort of Russian magical realism, so a lot of things don't resolve the way that you want them to. Hmm. But then the next scene, we see Kovalov waking up in the morning. Uh, the first thing he does, because he's so vain, is he calls for a mirror so he can check out his face, and he discovers his nose is missing. Uh, <laughs> great. How do you put that on a stage? Let me ask you. I do not know. But anyway, he then goes on a search for his nose. Um, He actually runs into it. It is grown to life size. It's dressed in a very fancy military uniform. And he he accosts it at church where it is praying his nose. And he says, you know, get back on my face. This is where you belong. And his nose says to him, I can see by your uniform that you are not as high and mighty as I am. So therefore, I do not want to talk to you because you are not worthy of speaking to me because I am so much higher up in society than you are. So Kovalev then goes to the police department to write a report, but the police, there's no one there to take his report. So then he goes to a newspaper to put an ad in the paper and say, my nose is missing. Please keep an eye out for my nose. And they refuse to place this ad. They say, you know, that's too vulgar for our our newspaper. We need to have sort of more high, high highbrow ads in our newspaper. (laughs) That's too vulgar. 
Yeah, too absurd or where I was just like, oh, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. He goes home. He's despairing about his nose. Finally, people find his nose. They beat it up so it's back to nose size. They bring it back to him. He tries to get it on his face. It won't go back on. It all ends well that he finally gets his nose. <laughs> his nose goes back on his face eventually. But it's it's like this whole journey that he takes about his nose, about his, you know, his snobbery, the complacency of the upper classes. It's kind of a bourgeois sort of Russian magical realist story, which then Shostakovich back in the day when he was young, before he started getting all of this censorship from the Russian government, we only can imagine what Shostakovich might have been like if he had not had the Russian bureaucracy censoring him and saying, this is not the kind of music we want out of you. And the threats that he got about the kind of music he wrote, be that as it may, the nose is fantastic. The Met did a production recently that was then revived in the 2013 season, so it's available on the high def. But what I would mention, what I think um, your listeners might really enjoy, is if you go to YouTube and you um, search for tap dancing noses, because <laughs> Barry Kosky, who's kind of the enfant terrible of the opera world in terms of directors and productions, he did a production in London at the Royal Opera House, I think it was, where there was a moment where um, the music stops and the nose has been played by basically a young boy, which is a giant paper mache nose with his legs sticking out. And eight other noses come out on stage and they do this whole tap dance number. (laughs) And then presumably the opera jets then continues after the tap dance number is done. And finally, back to Damien for entrant number four, Alban Berg's Lulu premiered in 1937 and then completed in 1979. So Lulu was written by Elbon Berg. It was his second opera, I believe, after Wozzeck, which I really love Wozzeck, but I, I love Lulu more. I do think it is a little bit ridiculous, not in the storytelling necessarily, but in the fact that this entire opera is a serialist piece. It's all 12 tones. I'll just jump in here real quick to define 12-tone serialism. It's a highly mathematical conceptualization of composing, where all 12 half-steps within a scale are ordered in some fashion and then placed in a grid. The melodic and harmonic lines come directly from this grid, and the idea is that every single tone in the Western scale is given more or less equal importance. This can lead, as one might imagine, to a musical line that's pretty difficult for the ear to follow. How does anybody learn this music? <laughs> How does anybody learn this music? I, I had to sing once a cantata by Webern, mm-hmm. and it was nowhere near the length of Lulu. And I thought I was going to pull the hair in my beard out because it's just like impossible to learn. You have to study this score so much. You know, with Verdi, you get a melody and it's like you sing this right. The melody is obvious. And bearing the melody is not as obvious. And so to hear these, I mean, there are there are motifs, there are light motifs and all these type things that you think about when you think about German opera. But to sit down and to try to find what the actual melody is takes like a lot of time. I mean, if I were to sing in this show, it would probably take me a year to learn. I don't know how I feel about the story. I mean, it's about, it kind of explores this idea of the femme fatale, right? But it explores her 
kind of her feminine traits as well as her masculine traits. And the thing that, how can I say this? The thing that she used in her favor, which I will say would be like her sexuality, is the thing that ultimately killed her at the end. Lulu was a woman who was, let's see, how can we say, desired by a lot of men. She was married to a doctor who died because he was surprised when she, when he found her sort of like in this entanglement with uh, a painter who lusted after Lulu. And he was like sort of chasing her around. And then he chased her up a ladder. Her current husband comes in and is like, what? Strokes, has a stroke, dies. <laughs> so then she... <laughs> So then she uh, marries the painter. The painter, what happens with the painter? She marries the painter. The painter dies. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> this pause of you figuring that I see, I see people trip themselves up over all sorts of opera plots this way of like, well, wait a minute though. Like yeah. what? <laughs> so what happens to the painter? The painter, oh, he kills himself. He kills himself because Dr. Schoen, who is a newspaper editor, tells the painter uh, about Lulu's childhood. And she was a, she was kind of a street kid. And so for some reason, this upsets him so, and he kills himself. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> so then that brings in Dr. Schoen. Dr. Schoen is, like I said, is a newspaper editor. You know, I don't know if he loves Lulu or not. It's hard to tell. They have some kind of a relationship. He he alludes to the fact that he sort of helped raise her. But then she says, actually, you did not raise me. I, this other guy who's, who, who's like a beggar was thought of as her father. He really wasn't her father. Okay. And actually, and actually he likes her too. So anyway, Dr. <sighs> Dr. Sharon um, is engaged to somebody. And Lulu finds this out. She's upset. So, to make a long story short, she makes him write her a letter, the fiancé, his fiancé, a letter to tell her that the engagement's off. So, Dr. Shun does that. Dr. Shun and Lulu get married. So, Dr. Shun has a jealousy issues. He has jealousy issues. And uh, he's eavesdropping, and he overhears, like, sort of these different men who are in the opera profess their love for Lulu. One of these people is his son, Alva who's a composer. Oh. Yeah. And another person is a countess. Countess Geschwitz. A lot of people like Lulu. Yeah. The men, the men love Lulu. The women love Lulu. She's got it going on. <laughs> 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 Dr. Uh, Shun is like mad about this. And while he's eavesdropping, he hears Lulu saying that she actually poisoned... <laughs> Are you keeping track of this? Sure. She actually poisoned his first wife uh. and so dr sharon is like oh i know she did not just say that so dr sharon's like here's a gun you need to kill yourself and lulu's like well here's a gun i'm gonna kill you boom 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 <laughs> so she kills dr sharon she is arrested she's thrown in jail she escapes jail alva the Countess and Lulu escaped uh, Paris, and then they go back to London. So what happens at the end is that Lulu is forced to be a prostitute, basically. She's coerced into being a prostitute. So remember what I said, the thing that she was sort of using to her advantage 
ultimately became the thing that killed her because Beric did a really interesting thing. He there are a certain amount of characters and most of those characters play more than one person and they reappear in her life as an alter ego to the first character, if that makes Okay. And, and so she has a customer and this person actually is Jack the Ripper. So Jack the Ripper kills her. That seems almost anticlimactic. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It is time to start thinking about your vote. This was a lot of opera to think about. So let's do one last summary of the four operas we talked about today. First, we have Rameau's Plate, a mythical mashup plotline, marsh nymph character meant to depict a woman in a highly unflattering fashion, commissioned for a royal wedding that should have ruined Rameau, but instead catapulted him to stardom. That will be facing off against Addis's exterminating angel. High-class folks are trapped inside a room and can't escape. Inexplicable lamb and bear, record-setting high notes, and a plot so convoluted that even the composer's not sure what it's about. Then we have Shostakovich's The Nose, Russian magical realism, class warfare represented by disembodied parts of the face, and an invitation for some productions to have tap-dancing noses within it. That will be facing off against Berg's Lulu, 12-tone serialism composition, a highly complicated plot of a femme fatale who is loved by men, loved by women, and killed by Jack the Ripper. Links to more information about all four of these operas can be found on our show page at keepclassicalweird.com. Okay, are you ready to find out how to vote? Voting for the first round will begin today, August 14th, to get us down to two operas, and will continue for an extra three days through August 24th to get us down to one. You can vote in any number of places. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page, send me a tweet at Casey Bozell, or shoot me an email at keepclassicalweird at gmail.com. Get to voting, y'all. You'll get the next four entrants to the contest in two weeks. And that's our show for today. Sincerest thanks to Claire Borovac and Damian Jeter for their amazing contributions to the contest. Our theme music is composed by the fabulous Thomas Barber. Check him out at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. We'll be back next week. Wear a mask. Stay safe and stay weird. <laughs>